0: Hello and welcome to episode five of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation.
1: And I'm Christine
2: Van Gein, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's Litigation Director. And I'm Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation.
0: In today's episode, we'll fill you in on the latest in the criminal trial against Freedom Convoy organizers Tamara Litch and Chris Barber.
1: We'll ask whether the town of Wasaga Beach's new
2: anti-car rally bylaw goes too far. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that did not quite land.
0: But first, let's talk about a worrying development for free speech proponents in Scandinavia. Joanna, tell us about how the Danish government is responding to some recent Quran burnings.
2: Yeah, so this summer, I was very lucky to go to medieval times for the very first time in my whole life living in Toronto. And I feel like we are back to the medieval times because we are witnessing one Western advanced country and possibly a second passing blasphemy laws. Um, So this is in Denmark, um, where there has been a spate of recent Quran burnings, um, and the Danish parliament has responded by proposing to bring back blasphemy laws. Um, There's also an issue in Sweden, which we'll talk about in a moment. And it's important to underscore that Denmark is a very free and historically in modern times, very liberal polity. Um, This is the country where in the G-Lens post, I probably butchered that, sorry, uh, Fleming Rose, uh, the editor of that newspaper, famously made the decision to publish the Muhammad cartoons in 2005, which of course uh, was countenanced with riots and Um, all kinds of civil disobedience. Um, However, I also just want to shout out Fleming Rose. He's an absolutely brilliant, amazing human, and he was actually our keynote speaker at the Runny Need Law and Freedom Conference in 2017. Fascinating and very brave uh, defender of liberty. Um, But so in Denmark, there have been occasional far-right public Quran burnings, for the most part tolerated by the government. There were even counter-protesters that have showed up at some of these burnings and government uh, police showed up to push back the counter-protesters. However, this is really coming from foreign pressure, uh, the impetus to bring back the blasphemy laws. Danish diplomats in Muslim majority countries have faced significant pressure to suppress the attacks and to do something about this. And as a result, This blasphemy law banning the public burning of religious texts, including the Quran, the Torah, the Bible um, will be introduced this week uh, and seems likely to be enforced by the new year. And it does carry a term of imprisonment of up to two years. When questioned about the free speech implications, the Danish justice minister claims that free speech is unaffected uh, because burning religious texts serves no purpose other than to sow division and hatred. Uh, and this is a real about face. In 2017, the Danish parliament voted 75 to 27 to abolish, again, an archaic blasphemy law still on the books um, that had outlawed public mockery of religious doctrine. And so this is really a poor precedent of kowtowing to foreign pressure. Um, and it should just be reminded. And of course, you know. All of us are uncomfortable when we hear about these things. Of course, it's vicious and hateful um, to burn religious texts, and it doesn't just happen with the Quran. This summer in Sweden, the Swedish parliament approved a request to publicly burn a Torah um, by a 50 year old woman who said that she was protesting uh, barbaric religious practices prescribed by the Torah. Certainly, I don't like that either, Um, but freedom of expression is only has teeth and is only meaningful when it embraces even these absolutely odious, hateful, offensive acts, as long as they don't carry a physical risk of violence. And no, violence to a book does not count as violence. Um, So unfortunate to see this trend happening. And from what I've read, Sweden is considering similar measures. Christine, any reaction to the re- re- return of blasphemy laws? I mean, it, it's bizarre to me. It's it's 2023. These are liberal
1: democracies. The concept of creating new blasphemy laws when they have repealed old blasphemy laws less than a decade ago is completely insane to me. And I mean, it should go without saying it's not a good or nice thing to do to to burn religious texts. But this is one of the core notions of Western democracies is that we have freedom of expression. Of course, this is a violation of freedom of expression. Of course, that's an expressive act. And it makes me think of the case that we're looking to intervene in in Quebec about uh, freedom of religion. And in that case, the students are seeking to pray on school property you know in empty classrooms or in in hallways and they are asking you know nothing of anyone else they are not saying you must you know comply with my religious uh, beliefs you must pray with me and this is sort of the opposite is saying you must uh, respect the um, religion of of other people you must comply with the religious requirements not to engage in blasphemy and the students in Quebec are doing the opposite they're saying let me have my religion let me practice it as I like whereas in these Danish and Swedish examples it's sort of the opposite saying you must uh, comply with my religious rules It's the whole concept of, of blasphemy is imposing religious rules so uh what do you think Josh I I mean I I Think that this is a bizarre turn of events for for a, a country like like Denmark and Sweden.
0: Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised that this is happening as disappointing as it is because when these Quran burnings happen, it can lead to you know a real risk of violence, like Joanna was talking about, maybe at the embassies, but also in Sweden there was a, a riot just this past weekend um, that was supposedly as a result of uh, Quran burnings but i looked into it a bit more and it really just seems like you know unemployed youths with nothing to do that decided this was a good excuse to you know burn some cars and throw some molotov cocktails so um i think sweden should be stronger than that and denmark can should be stronger than that and and um not allow not allow these things to happen I was also thinking about how, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but free speech actually has its modern origins in a strong desire among the public to be able to criticize religion and uh, people burning these Qurans, They're not doing it necessarily because they're hateful. Um, in some cases they're doing it because they they really want to draw attention to um, things about religion that they, that they have, that they take issue with. Um, in the United Kingdom, it was a guy named John Lilben, who was a Puritan who actually sort of showed the British public the value of free speech. And he actually ended up um, helping put an end to the Court of the Star Chamber, which was the court used by those in power to censor people, to shut people up. Um, for those who don't know, so Lilben, uh he, he was a member of this group called the Levelers. And like I said, he was a Puritan. And he advocated for two radical ideas. One of them was that men who uh, were like craftsmen or small property owners should be allowed to vote. Doesn't seem that radical now. And that there should be more separation between church and state in England. And uh, because of these views, he was sentenced to, to a fine, to whipping and to the pillory. And then on the day of his pillory, which was in 1638, Rather than apologizing like he was expected to, he denounced the bishops and the church, and again repeated his his viewpoints. You know, he had pamphlets handed out, and this made this made a big splash in the UK, and it made people realize that no, we do want people to be able to have freedom of speech, to be able to to criticize those in power, and you know, same thing in Canada. Like one of the biggest free speech cases in our history is uh, Boucher and the King. So, Boucher was a guy in Quebec. He was a Jehovah's Witness who um, was charged with seditious libel because he was handing out pamphlets that were critical of the relationship between the Quebec government and the Catholic Church. And um, this went all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, he lost at lower courts. And then the Supreme Court decided no, he has freedom of speech. And Justice Rand famously wrote, Freedom and thought and speech and disagreement in ideas and beliefs on every conceivable subject are the essence of life. The clash of critical discussion on political, social and religious subjects has too deeply become the stuff of daily experience to suggest that mere ill will, as a product of controversy, can strike down the ladder with illegality. So I hope that Sweden and Denmark uh, come to their senses on on this issue because they need to, to protect free speech. Christine, so you were gonna give us an update on the Tamara Litch and Chris Barber trial that recently started. I know not all that much has happened yet, but what did you wanna tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so Tamara Litch and Chris Barber, who were two people involved in the Freedom Convoy protests, they were key organizers, although there was not any you know, one leader of the protest, they were pretty key and important figures. So Tamara Lich and Chris Barber were charged with a few things uh, mischief and obstruction and mischief is not an especially serious charge compared to the things that we see violent offenders given given bail for and we know there was a big ordeal related to to Tamara Lich's bail so I'll talk about that a little bit but um. I think it's it's important to note that they've already faced some serious deprivations of liberty that I don't think can be justified and that are way out of proportion to the charges of obstruction and mischief. Lich has already served 49 days in jail despite no evidence that she is violent, no criminal history, and no evidence that she poses any risk to the community. And as I said, this isn't a country where literally three quarters of violent offenders are granted bail according to to recent research if you compare her experience to someone named randall mckenzie he's accused of first-degree murder of an opp officer in ontario mckenzie was out on bail at the time of the alleged murder despite previously breaching his bail on charges related to smashing the windshield of a car that had two kids inside stabbing a man twice punching his ex-girlfriend, headbutting a cop, and possessing a handgun. So he got bailed despite the serious violent charges against him because the judge was concerned about Indigenous over incarceration. Meanwhile, Tamara Lynch was not only initially denied bail, but once she was released, she had severe conditions placed on her, essentially uh, requiring her to give up her freedom of of speech and freedom of assembly rights because she wasn't, she was not allowed to use social media or organize or promote any anti-COVID-19 activities, not just ones related to Ottawa. Then she was arrested in June for breaching those conditions because she attended a public event where she posed for a photo with another person who had been involved in the freedom convoy, uh, and that led to even more time spent in jail. So in July, after 49 days in jail, a judge finally approached her case with some common sense and, and released her because he recognized that the case against her was not can't can't be considered to be a strong case. And the gravity of the alleged offenses was not high, and that there was not likely to be a lengthy prison term upon conviction. So to me, that's pretty clear that the lower court judge was just totally un- unreasonable in granting all of these conditions. Chris Barber, the other organizer who had his uh, trial yesterday, he spent less time in jail, but he also had his charter rights taken away from him. If there had been more lockdown restrictions since, uh, since 2021, he would not have been able to protest those or even speak out against them on social media, uh, which is something you would not expect to happen in Canada. Restrictions on, on your expression and right to assembly uh, is not something that we see in Western liberal democracies that's kind of the extreme lockdowns we saw in in China so we've we've uh, Joanna Barron and I have written a book where we talk a lot about some of these pandemic related issues it's called pandemic panic and it's available right now on Amazon for pre-order it's already a number one bestseller on on pre-orders
2: in three categories (laughs) yeah
1: in three different categories so Oh, we're pretty pretty pandemic panic. Yeah, check it out. You could pre order (laughs) it. it's $27. And we do talk a little bit about the the lich bail case and and what happened there. You know, anyway, anyway, like I said, I'm not sure whether or not they are guilty of the mischief or obstruction charges that they are now uh, on trial for, but they have already been punished so severely that I think it would just be an absolute travesty if they were sent back to jail. Um, anything you want to add to that, Joanna?
2: Yeah, I'll add maybe just three quick points. I think that you talk about this in the book, but in addition to not being granted bail, Tamara Lich was brought into her bail hearing shackled speaking of medieval practices. No suggestion that like she's violent or a flight risk. And by the way she's still banned from entering downtown Ottawa without counsel so I noticed one funny detail of yesterday's hearing was that the judge rightfully granted a bail variation so she doesn't literally have to be with her lawyer 24 hours a day he said in court I like her but not that much uh and the second point (laughs) again I was I was looking through some of the live tweets of the trial And the crown in its opening is really, they they say that this is not about political views, this is not about the substance of the opposition to vaccine mandates and Max mask mandates. Um, They say it's about the means, not the ends, but I'm a little skeptical of that because they keep referring to in the opening, from what I could tell, that this was a political purpose, and they were seeking to change policy, and this is where I really hope the judge really walks a line here, and I'm really concerned, because it's such a fine line between saying, you know, you obstructed, you outright ignored, you know, police directives, and you engaged in peaceful protest and they have very good lawyers, Leach and Barber, Lawrence Greenspawn, who is going to argue essentially that this is about engaging in a peaceful protest. So how you actually sort out those two things, I really don't know. You know, I think it's possible that yes, they obstructed justice, um, but it's going to be really, you know, I hope that whatever the ruling is is that it's very narrow. And then the last thing is that, I honestly wish, as somebody who used to work in the criminal justice system, this should have been a case where the Crown should have decided not to proceed. They should have withdrew the charges, honestly. Um, and honestly, if I was in the Liberal government, because of course, let's be honest, the government can sort of informally uh, influence and and make their wishes known to Crown attorneys, I think it would have been in their interest for this whole thing to go away, especially given the pretrial custody that that Lich and Barbara already did. Um, But honestly, I just think like the um, the equities are not in their side anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if the if the liberal government starts doing comms showing, you know, poly support for the convoy. Um, But I honestly think uh, the appetite for all of that amongst the Canadian public, even though we know majority of Canadians supported clearing the convoy, I think that time has kind of passed. Um, So I really wish that this trial wasn't happening at all, but it is. And so we will continue to comment on it. Josh, anything to add?
0: Yeah, I agree with uh, everything you two said. But one thing I wanted to add is that, you know, mischief, and this is a crime involving interference with property. That's a real crime. But I I don't know if we see if we're seeing um, selective enforcement going on here because statues toppled across the country in during indigenous protests or anti-colonialism protests. And I didn't hear about many mischief charges related to those things. So I just hope if we are going to enforce these laws against protesters when they when they interfere with property that we enforce them against everybody equally. So let's take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to tell you about what's going on with Wasega Beach, Ontario. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. So, Wasega Beach is a town in Ontario that has the world's largest freshwater beach, and it sounds really nice, but if you've been there, you know it gets pretty crowded and it has a pretty young and raucous crowd most of the time. And while the water may be fresh, the sand is... uh, Well, let's just say there's a reason that the town is restricting tents on the beach, and I'll leave the rest up to your imagination. Anyway, so starting in 2020, this group called H2OI began hosting car rallies in the town. And these rallies involve hundreds of people with modified vehicles showing up, making a ton of noise, doing burnouts, doing street racing, doing stunts police car windows have been smashed property has been damaged and it's generally been you know chaotic and arguably dangerous so when the town heard there was another rally being planned for labor day they got an injunction from the court that clarified that opp can arrest and remove people from town if they know about this order and they attend or participate in this unsanctioned rally which seems reasonable enough And the OPP also majorly stepped up enforcement, so they stopped 259 vehicles over the weekend and laid 367 charges. And I'm not great at math, but that seems like pretty bad odds for getting a ticket if you ended up getting pulled over at all. But not only that, the town also passed this bylaw that bans attending car rallies with fines of up to $5,000. And they set up checkpoints manned by private security guards who they had deputized to, you know, stop and interrogate their fellow citizens. They also issued a press release telling people that if you have any modification of your car, you can't enter town. And that included residents, um, which seemed kind of sketchy. So this plan worked, it prevented the rally, and a lot of residents seem really happy about that. But I do have some concerns with this bylaw from a civil liberties perspective. So, you know, first of all, the bylaw not not only creates fines for people who organize these Nuisance rallies or who do the illegal and dangerous things like stunt driving, but it also criminalizes merely participating or being a spectator in an unsanctioned rally. And it's like, how do you tell who's a spectator in, in a rally? You know, are they just going to ticket everyone who's standing on the sidewalk looking at the cars? Even more concerning is that it defines car rally as, quote, any formal or informal event or exhibition consisting of the gathering of vehicles. So basically, the way I read that is if you informally make plans to drive to Tim Hortons and meet a couple of friends who also drive there in vehicles, you could potentially face a $5,000 fine. Um, I mean, it sounds like that would technically fall under this bylaw. And even more concerning still is that the bylaw says that anyone appointed by council could administer this bylaw. And that includes closing roads, um, which brings me to the checkpoints that they set up so I won't get too deeply into the constitutionality of checkpoints because that's quite complicated, but I do have concerns that like authorizing private security guards to close roads and pull people over and interrogate them might interfere with charter rights. You know, for example, you have a section seven right to liberty, which includes some degree of mobility rights. Uh, you have a Section 8 right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. You have your right to be free from arbitrary detention under Section 9. And so I don't know if these charter infringements happened up there, but to to me, it sounds like this bylaw goes a bit over overboard. So it's it's something I plan to look into a bit more. Um, Christine, do you happen to have any thoughts on this car rally bylaw?
1: Yeah, so I, I used to go to Wasaga Beach growing up sometimes you know with friends and uh to me this is just you know these beach town fun police and this is so typical of municipalities where it's these sort of petty bureaucratic small town mentality of like there's people coming from another place let's stop them and stop them from having fun it might be disruptive a little bit and you know, Wasaga Beach is a disruptive, disruptive place in the summer. It's supposed to be a lively beach town. And look, I get it. Like these car rallies is not my thing. No one is going to mistake my car for a car rally vehicle. If it is modified, the modification is like a giant dent I put into it. And I drive, you know, a mom crossover (laughs) type vehicle. So this is, This is not my type of activity. And and I do understand the idea of like noise, nuisance bylaws. Of course, that's sensible. But this to me is just going way too far and is representative of the small minded and petty thinking of municipal bureaucrats. Uh, Joanna, anything to add to that? You know I have a I have a big hate on for for city councils all over this province.
2: Yeah, they really are just like the petty, you know, authoritarians. We we have a pretty good track record of bringing justice to petty city councils well I wanted to mention two things first this is a factoid not legal information but Jamie Fox said that he was filming a movie in Toronto a few years ago and took his girlfriend to Wasega Beach because he was told by someone in Toronto like it's because it's the biggest freshwater beach in the world and she dumped him over it because she was like this is <laughs> terrible and he went on a radio show he was like that was not like Malibu so anyways <laughs> if you want want to take them on a romantic getaway I don't recommend Wasega Beach. Uh it's so cool can, for teenagers. Yeah, I had a
1: great time if, when I was 18.
2: If you're like yeah a 19 year old from Woodbridge or Burlington, not that I have anything <laughs> since Woodbridge or Burlington. That's where um, I'm from. <laughs> I I know. I know. <laughs> Um, it's great but if you're looking for uh, yeah a beach getaway I would recommend uh, I don't know Muskoka or Grand Bend or something like that anyways second point is that yes it's overbroad and it also seems um, like one of these bylaws that is almost certainly going to be applied in like a colorable way right so they're not going to target Christine and her mom SUV they're not going to (laughs) target even although there is a question about like funeral processions or wedding processions but we know that they're going to target um you know likely young men in like souped up civics um possibly young men who are of visible minorities and so there's a real sort of like uh you know capricious uneven application problem with this law so josh continue to look into it and um you know the freedoms defense team may be making a trip up to a sega beach soon
1: Maybe in a cooler car than mine. <laughs> um, okay, how about now we turn to the Freedom Update. We're going to update you guys about a case that we're working on. So I have not announced this one yet. We haven't even sent out a news release. And this is one of the things that's cool about the podcast is we can chat about some of the things we haven't even announced yet. So there's this is a case in Ontario that we're intervening in. And the case is called... The Ontario Ca- Teacher Candidates Council and Sarah Patrucci. So the case is about the f- the Ford government of Ontario had noticed that students in public schools had been struggling with math scores, that the math scores were declining. And they wanted to take a bunch of different approaches to improving the math scores of students. And one thing they did among a number of different things was they created a requirement through legislation that if a a person wants to qualify as a teacher in Ontario, they need to pass a math test. Um, The reason for this, and this is for all teachers, the reason for this is that someone, there's a shortage of math teachers that someone who might normally be, you know, an art teacher or French teacher or music teacher will sometimes be assigned to teach math. And the government wanted to ensure that every teacher had some basic math skills to show that they can teach that these core classes in case they're assigned to it. And the math test, they did a whole bunch of research about how to make this test fair and it wasn't just it. And and it tested on actual math skills for grade three, six and nine. So basic math questions. And the teachers union in Ontario did not like that their teachers were being required to know that they know they know how to teach math or know math at all. And they took a surprising approach to making this argument. And they said that the test is racist. The t- test is discriminatory and a violation of our Charter-Protected Guarantee to Equality under Section 15 of the Charter because of what they said was a disproportionate number of certain racial groups do worse on standardized tests like math tests, uh, like the standardized math test. And this case, I think was decided in 2021, the original case, it's now going to appeal and of all of the cases that were brought during this time when the government was you know locking us down closing businesses had the police empowered to stop us randomly on the street requiring we get vaccinated you know the court said all of that it's totally constitutional but this math test is definitely unconstitutional it's super racist discriminatory and to me this is mind blowing this is like one of the biggest failings of all of the Section 15 jurisprudence in Canada, it's led up to this completely absurd conclusion that the outcome, that the, the, the law is racist because it has a differential outcome. And from an, an, another case called Fraser. and this case to me is the extreme, taking Fraser, this Fraser case, to the absolute extreme. And you know, we decided that, so the government is appealing this, the the, the, they, and I think that this is what you might call the bigotry of low expectations. Like, I actually think that the argument that the teachers college made is the racist argument. I don't think that the test is racist. I think saying these particular ethnic or uh, racial groups can't do math, that's the racist thing. That's the bad thing to say. And it's the union that's arguing it. And there's a whole bunch of things that I also think are important to know about the test. Like the, it has all kinds of different accommodations. So it, it's not just like you, pass, you fail the test and you can never become a teacher. You can actually take the test as many times as you want until you pass it. That when they first created this, there was no fee associated with taking the test multiple times. Um, the questions on the test, when the government developed it, they screened the test for bias, for racial bias. I mean, I don't really quite understand how uh, there can be racial bias in a math question, but apparently they worked really hard to ensure that there wasn't. The The government made practice tests available. The If a teacher candidate failed the test, the College of Teachers was never informed that they failed. They were only told about successful um, successful attempts. So it, there also were all kinds of different um, exemptions that were available for people, and the government continued to monitor the test for access uh, to assess any uh, equity issues. So the government was already bending over backwards to make sure that this test was was functional. The lower court. Came up with all of these alternatives. They're saying, "Well, you know, the the government shouldn't have a test. They should have a course." And it just blows my mind that the the court seems to believe that they can insert their own policy preference. So this case is going to the court of appeal this fall. We have been granted leave to intervene to argue that this <laughs> that this is taking Section 15 equality too far. That. This case is, um, is n- that the the lower court decision was not the right decision. And uh, we are supporting the government of Ontario in their appeal. And we are saying, you know, math tests are not racist, <laughs> or at least this one isn't. So we're really looking forward to that. We're going over the finalizing the materials now, but uh, we'll be announcing that case and having more details about it soon. Uh, anything either Joanna or, or um, Josh, you want to add to that?
0: Yeah, I think we have, um, I think we have a really good argument, and it's because you know you mentioned this Fraser Fraser case, which basically says you know any differential outcome is going to be um, evidence of discrimination that's unconstitutional, which is is crazy because you know there are differential outcomes between groups all the time, but thankfully, thankfully the the Sharma case that came after that, the court seemed to reverse itself and return to a more sane uh, test on, uh, what constitutes discrimination. So I I think we have a good chance. So I'm looking forward to, uh, seeing what happens next with this case.
1: Joanna, anything from you? Uh,
2: no, I think Josh is right. It's good to have a case that gets to real fundamentals, which is, you know, the equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. Um, but this is really like taken to an absurd conclusion where you have a conclusion (laughs) from a court that math is racist. Um, so it's both, yes, a little bit quippy, um, but it also is like a really fundamental sort of debate um, in our current society. So shall we pivot to bad legal takes? Josh, do you want to kick us off with, I know you have a spicy one this week.
0: I think they're <laughs> always spicy. Of yours
2: yours <laughs> is a good one, Josh.
0: Okay, so my bad, my bad legal take goes to this professor, Raywant Want deonandon, who's an epidemiologist at U Ottawa. And Dayanandan got Twitter famous during the pandemic for you know telling us we need to suspend all our civil liberties and get a million boosters if we ever want to see our grandmother again. And I kind of think that fame might have gone to his head, like a lot of the um, a lot of the TV famous doctors from the the COVID pandemic. So he offered this spectacularly bad legal take in response to a Daily Telegraph column by Jordan Peterson. And uh, in this column, it's it's got a headline that says, it says Canada is trampling on my God-given right to free speech. Dan Anden said in response to this column by Dr. Peterson, do I dare say God didn't give us these rights? A Trudeau did. Now, this is a surprisingly <laughs> common claim that Pierre Trudeau is the reason we have rights because he helped oversee the entrenchment of the Charter of Rights in 1982, but it doesn't take a lot of Googling to figure out that our rights did not begin 40 years ago with Pierre Trudeau. You know, the concept of rights, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast, dates back hundreds of years. Um, in in the, the English context, it dates back to 1215 when landowners forced the king to recognize certain rights with the Magna Carta. And, you know, basically all of the rights in the Charter developed through the British common law which was received into Canada and arguably implied by the 1867 Constitution Act, which says that the provinces were uniting with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. You know, the concepts of free expression and freedom of religion, like I was talking about before, these go way back, and Peterson actually recognized this. You know, he said in his column, quote, the the charter has been paraded before Canadians as the ultimate guarantee of the freedoms we have enjoyed anyway under the much more reliable aegis of British common law. So, you know, sorry, Dr. Dayanandan, but it looks like you'll need to go back to telling us why two-year-olds should be wearing masks because I don't think you really know what you're talking about here.
1: I think he didn't even read the column. <laughs> I mean, if... <laughs> Um, Okay, I'll go on to my bad legal take. Um, Mine is based on a really sad situation. Uh, It's a woman named Sheila Annette Lewis, and she was a terminally ill woman in Alberta who needed a life-saving organ transplant. And Alberta Health Services doctors refused to put her on the high-priority organ transplant list because she wasn't vaccinated against COVID-19, and she did not want to get vaccinated. And this was for... A variety of reasons, I'm not quite sure what they were, but she fought the decision to deny her a place on the transplant list as a result of her declining the COVID vaccine. So one thing that's important to know about her case is that she actually already had COVID at some point. She had COVID antibodies, so she had been infected and uh, recovered. But unfortunately she lost her fight against this decision to deny her a spot on the transplant list And ultimately, she lost her battle with her health and passed away. And it's an absolutely tragic situation. Look, I am not an expert, uh, but there is a lot of data that acquired immunity is perhaps more effective than the vaccine. The vaccine does, there's data that the vaccine does not stop you from getting infected and it does not stop people from dying from COVID. So I think that there's perhaps some justification for the policy that required. Vaccination for organ transplants uh, very early on in the pandemic and organ transplant recipients were given priority in vaccination because they are severely immunocompromised. And we also know that the earlier strains of COVID were more dangerous. So I think there might've been some justification for this policy choice by the organ transplant list to prioritize people who had been given vaccines Uh, early on. But I think at this stage, maintaining this requirement uh, at this stage in the pandemic isn't justified. I think that the courts made a mistake. And I think it's tragic that this woman died. Um, I also have complicated feelings about her choice not to be vaccinated. I think I I don't understand that choice, um, given that it could have saved her life I mean everyone has their own reasons for for choosing the making the choices that that they do but I don't understand that choice it's not um not clear to me why she made it but it's her it's her choice to make and I think it was wrong of the government to deny her a spot on the list as a result of that choice but my bad legal take this week is actually the heartless absolutely heartless response to her death because her death is tragic so someone named Dr Doug Olfson tweeted, a patient would be refused a liver transplant if they refused to stop drinking and would have been refused a lung transplant if they refused to stop smoking. This is no different. Like this is completely different. I don't even know what this guy is talking about. Drinking causes the liver cirrhosis. Smoking causes the destruction of the lung. The COVID vaccine is not at all comparable. She wasn't actively contributing to her own demise the way um, an alcoholic with a needing a liver, liver does or a smoker uh, needing a lung transplant with all due respect, uh, the way they are in that scenario, in this hypothetical. She also has the COVID antibodies. So she made a valid and legal medical choice about her own health. I would probably have not, the, I mean, it's not probably, I absolutely would not have made the same choice, but she had her own reasons uh, why she didn't want to get that vaccine and her refusal to to get it, while I don't understand it, it's just not comparable to those other scenarios. So there's a lot of moralizing going on here that isn't justified. And I think perhaps it's because these people don't want to have carry the guilt that they have you know, contributed to the demise of this woman. It's just so
2: sad. Um, Joanna, we'll turn to you. Okay, so my bad legal take is this ongoing push to recognize a constitutional basically right to shelter. So this is going on right now in Alberta. A group called the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights has commenced a legal action against the city of Edmonton. And they've claimed that the city's displacement of individuals in encampments, so police clearing illegal encampments, has placed vulnerable homeless communities in dangerous situations, and they claim that Edmonton, despite being aware of the inadequate number of safe shelter spaces available to a rapidly increasing unhoused population, continues to displace and destroy encampments with nowhere for people to go. Um, so, you know, obviously, that's it's a rough state of affairs, the homelessness crisis, but the bad legal take is that they're claiming that this is a constitutional violation, that the city's encampment enforcement, clearing illegal encampments, violates several charter rights, including Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person, Section 12, cruel and unusual punishment, and Section 15, equality, including um, uh, intersectional equality. And so look, they nobody is claiming that the Edmonton police lacks the proper jurisdictional bi- capacity pursuant to a valid bylaw to clear illegal encampments. Nobody's disputing that the encampments pose a hygiene hazard, pose fire hazards, um, and are just basically illegal encampments on public land. What they're claiming is that it's illegal for the city of Edmonton to be doing this when they know that there's a shortage of shelter beds, which in turn makes the claim essentially that there is a constitutional right to provide free shelter. And I think that we should be very suspicious of expanding the charter to embrace what is what are called positive rights so actual obligations on governments judges don't manage city budgets judges don't implement social programs judges are quite simply outside of their lane Um, we've seen this pop up uh, in waterloo region earlier this year this has been a big thing in bc um, and yet there's a line of case law uh, ontario court of appeal in a case called tanu daja i definitely butchered that um, ruled in 2014 that there is no positive freestanding right to housing. Um, so this is one of those issues that you're gonna see bumbling up and it's important to watch. I'm gonna be writing about it for The Hub this week, so tune in there. Um, and I will pass it along to our Captain Josh to close us out.
0: Looking forward to reading that, that Hub piece. It's a really uh, interesting interesting issue. As usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a non-partisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. If you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHawes, at jdehawes at theccf.ca. Joanna Barron at jbaron at theccf.ca or Christine at cvanguyne at theccf.ca. Thanks for listening.